Hello and welcome to episode number 155 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we welcome back Maureen Freely. She is an author, translator, professor of English at the University of Warwick and currently president of English Pen. Most recently, she translated a just-published edition of In the Shadow of the Yalla by the 20th century leftist feminist writer Suat Dervish, which is what we're going to be talking about. Published by The Other Press, it's the first English-language edition of this novel, indeed the first English-language edition of any Suat Dervish novel, and it's a very good place to start, a swirling, evocative story of romantic entanglements marinated in the gloomy, almost gothic atmosphere of late Ottoman and early Republican Istanbul. We talk about the novel in our interview, as well as the eventful life of Suat Dervish, who's actually only just come back to relative prominence in Turkey itself in recent years. But before we get started, remember that you can find our entire archive of episodes going back to 2015 at turkeybooktalk.com. Also remember that you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras, including an exclusive discount of 30% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman History series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 30% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. Also, if you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then you're in luck because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of each episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is obviously ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Maureen Freely. Suat Dervish was born in 1904 and I started by asking Maureen to give us a brief overview of Suat Dervish's biography. Where was she from and what was her family background? Suat Dervish was born into a very cosmopolitan and very privileged family, very Ottoman. Her grandfather was a pasha who went to the Grand Vizier's house on the Bosphorus in Bebek, I think, and was captivated by a dancing girl who was in the harem of the Grand Vizier and asked the Grand Vizier if he could buy her. And the host said, nonsense, you can take her home with you. That was Suat's grandmother. The Pasha already had a very large family, but she became his next wife. He had two children with her, and she died while giving birth to the second child, who was Suat's father. He was brought up by some of his older half-sisters who made sure that he had a good education and he studied medicine in France. And when he returned, he became a much-loved society obstetrician-gynecologist in Moda. So that's where she grew up. Her mother was uh, from another distinguished Ottoman family that was involved with, with classical music. Her next-door neighbor was the 
unsettled bad boy, Nazim Hikmet, much loved by the whole family. He was infatuated with Suat Dervish when he was a teenager. Um, she liked him but did not return his affection. It's thanks to Nazim Hikmet that she began her literary career really early. She was at school. She didn't do much schooling. She, uh, she had a governess, French governess, I think. But she was trying to do some schooling so she could go to university. And young Nazim was at the house. Uh, he found some of the things that Swat had been writing. She'd been writing a number of Gothic novels as a teenager and writing down words, passages that she found very, very striking. And, uh, and then there was a poem he found. And so he told Suat's mother that he was very impressed with this poem and could he take it with him. And two weeks later, he returned and it was with her name on it in a literary journal. And so she was furious. But a week or two later, she took herself into the city and presented herself at the journal in question and said, I, um, I want you to take more of my work. And so she started writing for them and started publishing these very, very racy novels. Uh, she published quite a few of them by the time she developed her second career, which was as a writer of daring socialist reportage. This was not with Nazim himself because he was having to flee the authorities and he was abroad, but it was with all of his friends uh, on the communist side of the spectrum. You might call them very posh communists. So she she had this quite a singular upbringing, you know, quite wealthy, part of this westernizing late Ottoman elite. She was educated. And obviously, as you say there, she made her name as a writer, a novelist and a political journalist throughout the, the 1920s, 30s and 40s. And obviously she had these leftist communist sympathies. Obviously, in the single party era, that was not an easy time really to be a leftist, uh, it's fair to say. I mean, how did she survive and how did she avoid throughout this whole time being arrested or worse? Uh, she survived with difficulty in the same way that all of her associates were. And uh, when it became very difficult, which was in the 40s, and her husband was in, in prison, she did a lot of um, writing under pseudonyms or writing for other people under other people's names. But it was very, very difficult. She was close to starving at some times and close to homeless at others. Her family had lost all its money by then. So they, they hit very hard times. So she never, ever stopped putting a lot of thought into her appearance. She was very good at making the, the best of things in a very, very stylish way without spending much money. She never gave up her love of patisseries. So she kept her life as cheerful as possible, but she was really living hand to mouth and she was being hunted. Why she wasn't arrested is a tricky question. There was one point when she was kept under house arrest and that was in, uh, in Ankara. But uh, I can't answer that question. Certainly she was taking all the risks that uh, everybody else was taking. And then she did go abroad when things were looking very, very bad. And uh, while she was abroad, she you know, began her, her career as a novelist again in French while almost starving again. So her time in exile was never quite forgiven. Her husband understood, but uh, those around him never really did. So she left for exile in 1953, which is interesting because it was just after the end of the single party year, obviously, three years after. She went to France and uh, she stayed there for 10 years, I believe, before returning yeah. to Istanbul in 1963. Yeah. And that was when her husband was released from jail. So when she left, he was still in jail and he was uh, released and she came back. Just talk yeah. about that, you know, the circumstances of that exile. You say there that she was um, living a pretty hand-to-mouth existence, but... Um, 
you know, why did she go at the time that she went? And, uh, you know, what did she do in Paris? And uh, talk about the circumstances also of that return 10 years later. Well, she was having a hard time putting hand to mouth, really. <laughs> she was being hunted. And so her sister had this small allowance that she was willing to share. And together they went to Paris, where they lived in half-starving. And at this point, she tried to get help from various people you know, from her circle, her, her communist circle from uh, Istanbul. But various arguments had broken out in the way that they do. So she wasn't getting much help from the people she'd expected to get help from. We don't know quite how she got in touch with the, um, the, the great and the good of the French Communist Party. She certainly did write to Nazim, who was in Moscow at the time, begging him, telling him how difficult her circumstances were. But of course, her husband, imprisoned husband, was the general secretary of the Turkish Communist Party. So there would have been some solidarity there. Once the great and the good of the French Communist Party took her under their wing, she had quite a starry life, you know, not a great life of wealth, but she was fated. She was introduced to uh, all the best socialist left left circles. And she made a bit of a name for herself. She translated, with the help of her sister, two novels during that time, which were very warmly received by important people. And In the Shadow of the Yala is one of them. Now, in Turkish, it was called Çılgıngibi, which is a very, very different sort of title, like Mad, but In the Shadow of the Yala is just pressing all of the Orientalist buttons, if you like, that seemed to be what people wanted. And of course, the novel does begin and spend quite a long time in a disintegrating Yala on the, on the Bosphorus. The really interesting thing, first and foremost, is that the French is really lovely. It's very, very precise and light. It was, I think, the first language that Sawat and her sister learned to write in as they had a French governess. It's also a third of the length of the Turkish novel, which Suat originally wrote, I think, in a great hurry for a Turkish newspaper and definitely destined for women readers who didn't really matter very much, you know, women of the educatable classes, if you like. So my guess is that she didn't get any notice for this novel and her other novels in Turkey because the men who knew her for her political writings didn't take it seriously and certainly didn't read it. And one of the fun things about the novel for me is you have that sense of Suat writing under the radar and knowing just how far she can push it in terms of what's on, what she's allowed to talk about in terms of female sexuality and female desire and male desire. The interesting thing was that when I read the French after reading the Turkish. The French is about a third of the length of the, of the Turkish version, and it leaves out female desire. It puts all the men in the foreground. So why did she do this? Why did she and her sister decide to do this? It's a really, really interesting question that remains you know, open. It has been suggested to me that the Communist Party in France in the mid-20th century was a bit puritanical. It may be that they decided that they wanted a different kind of book so as not to over-orientalize what they were giving to France. It may be that they just didn't have enough time. They were very, very short of money. But it is really remarkable how different the French translation is from the Turkish original. It's amazing, really. I mean, she first wrote the book in, in Turkish in 1944, yeah. and um, it was serialized in a newspaper. And the actual rewrite was basically written from memory uh, while she was in Paris. 
Maybe that's why it's shorter, because uh, yeah. she just couldn't remember. It. Quite an <laughs> amazing not, feat when you think about it. I'm not sure it was memory. I think she might have had okay. some of the clippings with her. It's very, very, very well crafted in, in the French. So I think it, it looks to me as if it was you know, edited, severely edited. And it has a different ending. The ending, not to give a spoiler, Jelile is, is trapped. I mean, she ha- has opened her eyes to her true situation, but there's nothing much she can do about it. Or she realizes there isn't much she can do about it. Whereas in the French version, this woman who has no skills, no education, just gets up and says, oh, that's it then. I'm just going to do what I want if I become a single mother in the, in, in the, in the meantime. So what, I, I can stand on my own two feet, which is a very nice thought. And it's certainly the way Suat herself lived. But it's quite a bit of a jump for uh, the character in the book who has been listlessly receiving whatever life gives her until she develops this huge infatuation for the wrong guy. Yeah. So let's talk about that. I mean, the book is it's called, obviously, the In the Shadow of the Allah, uh, centered on this character, Jalile. And it's uh, the story, really, of this sophisticated menage a trois set among both the old Ottoman elite and the nouveau rich of early Republican Istanbul. A kind of tragic arc to the story. I wonder, could you just talk also about how the project came about in the first place? You know, you've translated plenty of books in your time. So how did you decide to translate Suat Dervish at this stage? Was it your decision or did the project come from elsewhere? I was in New York trying to win a contract for a book I've been trying to place for 45 years, which is Sev Gisoysal's Shafak Dawn. Uh, a book that I adore. It's had a big effect on the way I think about things. By the way, I did get a contract for that wonderful novel. That's another story. But an agent based in uh, in Istanbul had set up a number of appointments for me. And uh, one of those appointments, I went to see other press. And they had uh, acquired the rights for both of the Swat Dervish books that uh, were published in French, and they liked them very much. And uh, to tell you the truth, I had never heard of her. And in fact, when they first said, uh, what do you think of Suat Darvish? I thought they were talking about a man, because Suat is a man's name generally. And there's a story for that, in that a, a boy was expected, a boy didn't arrive, and uh, Suat's father wanted to give that name Suat. The imam had a fit, so they put some other name on the birth certificate, but she was always known as Suat at home. Anyway, they said, could you take a look at it because we have to do something uh, about it and we don't know whether we should go with the French version or the Turkish version. And so I went off and, and read the books and French translations and I fell in love with this book, Sulgengivi, the, the Turkish version, because it was so wild. It was so astute about class and new money and the position of women in the late Ottoman Empire and then in the early Republic. And uh, at the same time, it was this very, very steamy romance that is very careful about the language it uses uh, when it's enacting female desire, but it's pretty powerful and it feels a bit forbidden. So a romance with Gothic under and overtones uh, with a, a social realist perspective. How many of those can you think of? <laughs> I fell in love with that, and then I became even more intrigued when I looked at the truncated, very beautifully crafted, but very, very male-dominated French version, and I thought, well, I have to do it. So that's kind of the story. I also, not having known much about Suat Dervish, uh, there was a lot of reading 
I needed to do. Uh, there is a, a really lovely biography of Swat Dervish that is fairly new, and that's by Lisbeth Behmoaras, who I think has family, has family there. So she uh, did a tremendous job gathering up what, what evidence and what uh, documents there are. And there's a group of Turkish feminist literary historians who have found her and, and brought her back to us because she was pretty much left out of whatever we can call a canon until fairly recently. So this is yet another woman writer who's being brought back to us by a gen- yeah, the new generation of feminist scholars in Turkey. Yeah, it's funny because whenever I've asked people recently about uh, Suat Dervis, most people actually have never heard of her here in Istanbul. So, so coming back to the text, I mean, um, you say there it's this kind of lu- luxurious, lush, rather rarefied atmosphere that it has, this romantic tale of privileged classes. And obviously there's this classic universal romantic theme of an elite family that's fallen on hard times. It's perhaps not exactly what we might expect, really, from uh, an avowedly Marxist writer. You write in the intro that Swat Dervish, quote, remains a puzzle, the Marxist who wrote steamy romances. I also thought as I was reading the book, you know, it's actually quite striking how the novel lacks social or political detail in many ways. You know, the plot develops in these interior private landscapes, basically within families, within particular social circles. And obviously there are these two classes, the old money and new money rubbing up against each other. But it's still quite difficult to get a specific handle on exactly where or when things are happening because there's, it does kind of lack these these sociological or social details. And uh, we get these references to wars and other catastrophes, but they're only fleeting and uh, lacking in much depth, which again is perhaps quite surprising for us considering it was written by someone who was such a avowedly political person. Well, she's writing in a woman's voice and she's writing from the woman's world. And even I, growing up uh, in Istanbul in the 60s and and 70s, there wasn't much outside for our lives. It's never been the same city or country for girls or women. So she she situates herself in that woman's world and her, her larger understanding of the political formations is what structures the book. She knows much, much more about how, how things are, are done and why things are done. But she very much stays within the voice and the realities of the characters as they go from scene to scene. Always bearing in mind that when she first serialized it in the Turkish newspaper in the middle of World War II, everybody would know which way they were talking about and what kind of profiteering was going on. So there are these illusions which are very easy for a contemporary Turkish reader to pick up. So it's that you know, everything that she says about the old Ottoman disintegrating Yada and the grandmother and so on, it's, it's sociologically exact for that particular group. And the narrator is commenting all along about you know, what's not happening there, cataloging the last retainers who are also bleeding the grandmother's coffers dry. And also when Jelile has to find a new home because her grandmother has finally passed away, then she comments that Jelile doesn't even realize that her uncle is doing her a great favor by bringing her into his home because she's always expected people to look after her. It's just that's what doesn't feel strange. It doesn't occur to her that uh, something else might have happened. So she's entirely innocent about the uh, New Republic, but also really not very interested except for fashion and flowers and beautiful vistas 
she's very very fine in her in her limited world and she doesn't dislike her husband but she's not particularly interested in him either and his obsession with money and getting enough money so that he will get the respect he owes and she will have the riches and the houses and uh, all the accessories of the wealthiest women she's indifferent to all that because of her upbringing and because of the the very different ethos that she grew up in without any friends so she's really been living in a, a world that doesn't exist anymore outside the disintegrating yalla of her childhood the descriptions of the rivalry between Mr. Big, the person she falls so madly in love with without realizing what the two men think of her, and, and the husband, is a really wonderful portrait of new money trying to get up at the level of not quite as new money. Not quite as new. It's certainly not old money. But uh, that is really, really well done, as is everything about female experience at the time. But again, as I said before, it hasn't changed quite as much as people think it might have done. And the pages rattle past at this rapid pace uh, and the tension just keeps escalating in this kind of melodramatic way. Uh, And the story itself is very uh, cleverly, intricately constructed. It shows how these multiple perspectives inevitably exist and inevitably lead to complications. And it's basically portraying these three people with completely different understandings of their relationship with each other, unable really to understand each other. And it shows this uh, keen awareness, I thought, for people's capacity for self-delusion, essentially. That is one of the main themes of the book, I think. And we get these various chapters that are narrated from the different characters' perspectives. But stylistically, it's generally very straightforward, melodramatic in tone, but realist mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, it's kind of straightforward descriptions. I just wonder, is that representative of uh, Dervish's wider oeuvre or is that something very specific to this book? Certainly, it's not characteristic of her political writings. One of her most um, admired and infamous political writings is Why I'm a Friend of the Soviet Union. She went and did a serious tour of the Soviet Union to look at what was happening there. She did really interesting reportage at various important political congresses in, in Europe. And her tone in all of those is very, very different. It's brave, it's self-deprecating, it's funny, it's sharing interesting stories with readers who are her friends. It's very, very interested in those who don't enter into this particular story at all, which is, you know, the, the common people, you might say. So what happens with her novels is that they, uh, the early ones, are you know, straight romance. As time goes on, she develops a political understanding through her journalism, really, uh, of what her own country is like in terms of, of class, poverty, inequality, and so on. So slowly, that understanding comes into her plots. Some of her other most admired books do have people who do not belong to the, the classes of old money and new money. They're about the people who are left behind. And they're interesting, too. But for me, this was the one that uh, I had to choose first. And it's this very evocative tale, rather melodramatic, as we're saying, even uh, gothic in tone uh, for for much of it. I kept thinking as I was reading that uh, it would actually work quite well as a TV series. Don't know know, if it ever was made into one. Uh, do you know, I think so too. And uh, I think it, it really, really should uh, be a Dizzy. I've been watching quite a few Dizzy's over, over the pandemic. And, you know, they often do take books from a long time ago and update them. Or I think this would work very well if it were kept in the, in the, new, in the time of the New Republic. 
be very, very interesting. So if anybody's listening <laughs> who'd like to do that, uh, the book is out. This, this, I believe, is so far the only uh, English language edition of um, a Suat Dervish novel that's been published. Uh, I wonder if there are any other translations of her work planned, uh, either that you uh, or others are working on? Not at the moment, uh, but it is doing really well. I mean, other press is an amazing house in terms of getting books out there and making sure that those who will understand her significance, scholars of Turkish literature throughout the world have received copies and they have responded in very positive ways. And that's thanks to other press really finding its constituency. So let's hope that they want to do others. And let's hope that doesn't happen until I finish the novel or two. <laughs> and yourself, I mean, you tend to keep yourself very busy with work. Obviously, you're, uh, you're teaching a lot of the time at uh, Warwick University. But uh, what are you currently working on uh, in terms of translations or your own, your own work? Well, there are there is the uh, translation of Sergi Soysal's Shafak, which is, you know, it's delivered. It's not quite in production, but that will be coming out with Archipelago, which is a wonderful publisher. Oh, and there's also, I'm just finishing the finishing touches of Tozuklu Ngeleri, you know, The Cold Nights of Childhood by Tezer Izle, which is quite an extraordinary book that, again, I hadn't read. I'm ashamed to say that I hadn't read it. And it is very short, very, very unusual, very uh, influenced by European writers of the mid-century, if you like. And it has characters I knew as a child. It has real people in it I knew as a child. So it's been quite a, a wonderful surprise to go back to the Bayola and the Tunnel area of the 60s. It's a book that's about her own life. Uh, she was in and out of mental institutions. I think we would now say she was bipolar. But what happened to her in these institutions is unspeakable. One of the most amazing things about the book is that's not why she's written it. It's just about how, how she comes through all these things with an illness that she has never had a chance to understand either, but that she has learned to understand how beautiful the world is. So it's very, very lovely, very short, mixing up of past and present all the time to create the state of mind that she would call hers. So that was really wonderful. I'm, I have two novels set in Istanbul that I have sitting on my desk, both of which need some more work. Don't seem to be able to get far from Istanbul in my imagination or my work. Teaching, as you said, I've been chair of English Pen for almost eight years now. I'll be stepping down from that, but work that we do on Turkey in particular will continue to happen. So uh, my ambition as life was never to be bored, and that dream has come true with vengeance. That was Maureen Freely. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 155. If you enjoyed that, feel free to check out Maureen's other appearances on this podcast. She's been on previously to speak about Sabahattin Ali and Sait Faik Abisianik, two other great Turkish authors of the 20th century. I've put up links to those conversations under this episode at turkeybooktalk.com. Don't forget, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 30% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 Euros, or £2.50 per episode. 
You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it on whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com or via Twitter or via our Facebook page or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, before I go, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that's put together by the journalist Diego Cupolo. It's a package bringing together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.